The following episode of TOEFOP is rated MA for mature audiences. It may contain sexual references, time travel references, allegations of bin misconduct, and mild coarse language. TOEFOP advises that this episode is not suitable for anyone under the age of 15 or anyone who thinks a comedy conversation between two old mates sounds like a terrible idea for a show. Minors must be accompanied by a parent or guardian. This is John Deke speaking. Everyone relax. This is Tofop. I'm Charlie Clawson. Oh, I'm Will Anderson. Oh, hello, Charlie. And the holiday is almost over. We thought it was actually over. You and I were going to get together today and do a brand new episode of the show, but it yeah. turned out we still had one best off up our sleeves. Yeah, podcast Mike has been hard at work. We pulled him back from his holidays early. We and locked the content him. mines. <laughs> we locked him in a cell. We said... Cut together some best ofs. Awesome. How do we describe them? Uh, vaguely thematic Themed. episodes. <laughs> Themed episodes. So this one, I think, look, I mean, I'm not casting dispersions on podcast. Mike. So what, week one was Charlie gets grumpy. Charlie's an old man. Charlie, yeah. you know, you know yeah, gets angry about bins and local teenagers. Week two was what's podcast Mike wearing at the start of the podcast. Yeah. Now, Bull, what, well, bu- in brackets, bullying. <laughs> bullying. And what's week three? Well, it's a fairly general. I think a podcast Mark is like, was running out of ideas. Miscellaneous. Yeah. It's it's pop culture, <laughs> which I mean, I think you could describe that's like our show every episode, right? There's an element of pop culture. At some I point. like this. This is like on Hard Quiz with Tom Gleason, where they bring in their own topics, and often it's someone who's like only the Hufflepuff house <laughs> in Harry Potter, and the next one's like stamps between 1914 and 1916, and the next one's like space. Yeah, and you're like <laughs> just be too space? general, mate. Well, I'll give you a little uh, refresher, Will, on what we okay. talked about in the last twelve months: Tarantino, Pulp Fiction, and Michael Bay. Topical. I don't remember. It's what always been good about, about this podcast. Yeah. How topical we are. I mean, get, does that get a young audience in? Does Tarantino have appeal to young people in the same way he was formative to us in the '90s when indie cinema was big? Do you think that like young cool hipsters are into Tarantino? I think our only hope is that we keep going for long enough that our references become relevant again. Right. But in an ironic way. Yes. People start getting into the people that we're actually legitimately into. They get into them in an ironic way and we get a boost. Well, if you can stick around long enough, if you've got enough endurance, you can be like a David Hasselhoff who sort of started off legitimate in legitimate shows, then became something of a joke, then embraced the joke and then was able to rebrand himself as someone who gets the joke. And then became a joke again. Yeah. To be fair. (laughs) Uh, What else did we talk about? Bill and Ted's uh, uh, Face the Music, which you still haven't seen. No, have seen, have seen. And what did you think? Yeah, I liked it. I liked it a lot. There's not much to it. Yeah. Um, It's a very fun, light film, which is just what we needed in 2020. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, Look, it it was one of those things that for the first half, maybe two thirds of it, I was like, oh, I think I'm really going to like this. Yeah. And then I kind of... Kind of ran out of budget. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It felt like they ran out of budget. I do like, though, that we speculated. I look forward to seeing the ending, is what I'm saying. (laughs) I don't know if we talk about it in in this Best Of or this uh, themed Uh episode, but we did speculate, and this is a spoiler, so if you don't want to know what happens in Bill and Ted's, turn away now, uh, that we speculated that Rufus could have been played by Dave Grohl. That would be perfect casting, an old rock and roller. And Dave Grohl does appear in the movie. Does appear, not as a Rufus. Rufus is played uh, by um, Christian Charles yeah. and uh, is named Kelly after George Carlin's actual daughter, Kelly Carlin. Why didn't they just ask her to do it? 
I mean, she's. I guess she's not like. I mean, as big a star as Kristen Sharp. Yeah, I okay. think so. All right, fair enough. All right. We also talk about Jared Leto is in a cult. Is there a more unlikable celebrity than Jared Leto? Pete Evans. Yep, I can't get an answer. <laughs> All right, so that's some great stuff uh, that you can listen to, and I, I promise we'll be back next week. Um, we're building a new uh, Tofop HQ. Uh, at the moment, it looks more like Dexter's basement. Will we are in it though. Yeah, we will. Like we are recording this uh, intro from what will be our new Tofop studio, mm. and. Yes, it is very much at the most basic of all levels at the moment. Yeah, It's stripped down. There is plastic on the floor, very much Dexter style, like you're about to kill somebody in here. Yeah, um, about to murder some jokes. But the truth is that we've got some plans for it and how we're going to set it up and the things that it's going to enable us to do. So speaking of which, patreon.com slash TOEFOP is the place to go if you want to contribute to the show. Um, you can do that for as little as a US dollar per month and it helps us invest in the things that we're hoping in 2021 there are going to be a whole bunch of you know offshoots and new things we can do around the show and um you know obviously your contribution and support at patreon is what enables us to do those things and pay james and podcast mike and you know pay the inevitable law costs of this you know a lawsuit <laughs> that podcast mike will bring against us for workplace bullying so anyway it's all on the record that's the problem the hours in court when they're just playing like he actually prepared that best of episode last week as evidence for the oncoming court case so patreon.com slash you know what will we just need to make sure that when the trial happens, the stenographer who's taking notes oh, yeah. is a lady called Melissa that we use who's for in our pocket. Episode. That's right. Yeah. And so when they go to read back, she just changes everything to make us like, so they could have sworn they heard that we bullied him, but she's like, no, no, I'll read the notes back. And apparently we just gave him hugs and kisses. What a great. Actually, that doesn't make us sound that much what better. What a great <laughs> plot for a movie though. Because it's always about getting to the jury. Yeah. But what if you didn't have to get to the jury? What if you had to get to the stenographer? Yeah. Very forgetful just, judge. Just like. <laughs> Very forgetful judge who needs stuff read back to him all the time. So you get to the stenographer. Yeah. But if we change the, the, the transcript of the podcast to be like, all we're doing is hugging and kissing podcast Mike, mm. that doesn't put us in a much better situation. It's, a, it's harassment. It's a different kind of harassment. Yeah. Is it better or worse? Only he could decide. <laughs> <laughs> and now, he's us. Uh, yeah, so we've been trapped in a house. Uh, not trapped in a house, I shouldn't say that. But we've been in isolation with uh, um, a baby that we are trying to train to sleep. And so, it's these, you get these, we, we have been trying to watch more, more stuff. Because it's very rare that we're home at the same time to watch stuff anyway. But... At this stage of being a parent, you get 20 minutes into any movie and you fall asleep. Like, it's just part of the course. We have started and stopped about, like, 20 films because we can't get more than 20 minutes in before you just want to go to bed. That's all you want to do as a new parent is sleep. But you can't. It's like some kind of... Uh, Faustian deal. It's like you get this thing in your life that you love more than anything you've ever loved, but you'll never sleep again. Yeah. You know how much you love this thing? You're just going to have to stare at it constantly because it's constantly going to be awake and so are you. Enjoy the first 20 movie minutes of every movie you're ever going to watch for the rest of your life. <laughs> I did get to actually watch a film all the way through on the weekend though um, because I've been doing that thing where you just spend most of your time, let's watch a film, sure, and then you spend the whole time just scrolling through the menus of Netflix or Stan or whatever and never actually settling on anything. And so I said, let's just watch Pulp Fiction because we know it's a good film. It's been a while since I've seen it and I wouldn't mind just sort of 
watching something that you, you don't want to put on that new Ryan Reynolds film and then go, oh, fuck, like, why do we pick this? It's garbage. At least we know we're going to get quality and it's been long enough since we've seen it that we might get something out of it. And that film... Well, I will say firstly, before you go on, I watched, uh, I put on that new Ryan Reynolds film and I will say to you very proudly that I got five minutes in and went, why am I watching this? This is garbage. <laughs> Good. I had an instinct about that. <laughs> you were right. Uh, uh, but Pulp Fiction, man, like, it's sort of funny. Like, and there's certain films that are so influential and so famous that you kind of take it for granted. Like, watching it, it's like, A, it stands up incredibly well. Like, it is still like a, a, an almost flawless film from performances to writing to shock value, all that kind of stuff. But you just realize watching it, like how all pervasive it is in terms of of culture. Like I think Quentin Tarantino still makes good films, but it's that one, right? That's what he's going to be remembered for. When you think Quentin Tarantino, he hasn't made anything else that really comes close to the level of Pulp Fiction, has he? Not as something that literally changed cinema. Like they will look back on Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino had aspirations clearly to be one of the great all-time directors and Pulp Fiction is his movie that forever puts him in that zone. You could make an argument for a whole bunch of his other movies making him a great director. I mean, Reservoir Dogs is an incredible debut. Inglorious Bastards to me is, like Pulp Fiction, one of those movies that I can just watch any time that it's on television and from start to finish go, this is just a fantastic film. Like, there are so many of his films that I have absolutely loved, but, but Pulp Fiction's the one that puts him in the A-grader category. Well, I think it's where it sits in the kind of uh, landscape of movies at the time. The fact that, because I worked, that was probably around about the time I was working in a video store and it felt like every couple of months there'd be another movie would come in that was just a Pulp Fiction knockoff. Every film was about, uh, you know, a, a group of gangsters who all dressed really cool, trying to pull off some kind of heist or whatever, where it was like outrageously violent, you know, kind of sexual or whatever. Just to, everything was like pushed to the max, but they were all fucking terrible. Yeah, well, it's always the original one. And I mean, when you say the original one, it's, it's funny to say with a Quentin Tarantino movie, isn't it? Because mm. like, you know, Pulp Fiction isn't an original movie in some ways. It's him paying tribute to a particular style and era of movies, but reimagining it. And that's a bit why I think I love the Kill Bill films is because, again, they're not original films, but what he does with that source material and the way that he combines it into something that is original elevates mm. it. Well, I, you kind of get the feeling with all of the films he made after that. Like, so you, if you look at, if you break down his career from like Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, that's like his kind of crime trilogy, right? And then you go into sort of Kill Bill, Death Proof, which is sort of like his 70s kind of grindhouse cinema, exploitation cinema. And then mm -hmm. he moves into Inglorious Bastards and uh, um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Hateful Eight. Well, not, I don't know where you're into Django. So Django and Hateful of the Westerns, but then the other three are like revisionist history. So he has these kind of modes of operating and it, it sort of feels like, like I was watch, I watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood about two weeks ago as well, at least half of it. And you're watching this film and you're like, what is this? Like, 
If any other filmmaker had made it, you'd go, this is incredibly indulgent. All these fucking driving scenes, these sort of like little um, uh, uh, tangents that he goes on where suddenly you're on set of a TV show. It's like a 12-minute scene of like a B-grade TV show getting shot. But because he's so consistent with his POV, you know, and his understanding of this world of like television and movie stars of that era, it worked. It's kind of like, I always think about David Lynch. If any other filmmaker took David Lynch's tropes, you know, the kind of heavy sound design and just the surreal imagery and stuff and tried to do it, it would come across as completely artificial. But because David Lynch as a filmmaker is so consistent in his use of those odd tropes, that's why it works. Yeah, I think there's an element with David Lynch, with Quentin Tarantino, with any of those people where when you ask that question that you would ask of other people, what's the point of this? With them, the point of it is, is that it is, that's the point of it. The thing that you're watching is the point of it. The 12 minutes of watching this old school television set reimagined and this, the, that that's the point of it. Why is the car driving out of the driveway and we're watching the car drive down the so many times? Because that's the point of it. Why is that there? Because that's why it's there. Well, it got me thinking about, um, you know, auteurs and the idea of having a point of view. Because there's this, uh, do you ever watch, there's a guy called Patrick Willems on YouTube. He does these great video essays on cinema. He's this cinema studies kind of guy. And he did this two-part series about Michael Bay, defending Michael Bay, saying that, you know, Michael Bay is really readily dismissed as being this kind of shit director and he's got like a terrible score on Rotten Tomatoes. And he's gone, but the idea of him being a hack doesn't really make sense because when you ask someone to describe a Michael Bay film, they can talk about like his lurid color palette, the way the camera moves, the kinetic editing, you know, the male gaze of females, you know, sports cars. He has a definite signature and it's gone his point of view is juvenile and base and naval but you can't naval gazing but you can't suggest that he doesn't have a point of view this is just what happens when you give like a guy with the mentality of a 12 year old you know hundreds of million dollars to make a movie and he does it really really well whether or not you like it is just a question of taste but it's not like you know you can point at, at, at like a dozen other directors like a brett ratner or whatever who make the same kind of films, but you don't remember anything about Brett Ratner. If you were to describe me what's Brett Ratner's cinematic style, he doesn't really have one. So what you're basically saying is if you're going to be terrible, be the worst. Then people remember who you are. Like essentially Michael Bay is the equivalent of a hundred million dollar monkey smearing his own shit on a fucking piece of canvas. But somebody comes along and says, well, he's got a point of view. You know, no, smearing the shit on the canvas. I, I don't think it's that because that's more what like a director like Yui Bowl or some kind of B-grade exploitation director is. Like that's kind of, you know, that's like punk where you just go out and you just doesn't matter if you've got any technical ability, you just fucking have a go. Whereas Michael Bay is technically proficient. Like he knows how to move a camera. He knows how to compose a scene. It's just that his point of view of the world is shit. <laughs> Like it's really, it's really shallow and juvenile. But you know, if you're sort of arguing, I mean, you, I guess you're right. You're like, I do understand what Michael Bay's point of view is. I just hate what Michael Bay's point of view is. But it is yeah. a point of view. Bill and Ted's is one of those movies that we both have incredible affection for, and we've spoken about a lot on this podcast over the years. And it genuinely is one of these movies where I'm like, oh, I'm so glad that there's going to be another one. And uh, 
I'd been, you know, reading a lot of the stuff that Ed retweeted. There's been some really cool videos about how they came up with the characters in the first place and what the evolution of them were. And the it's been really fascinating from a writing perspective just to see these movies that I remember as being so, you know, fantastic and feel like they're exactly how they were conceived actually weren't how they were conceived at all. They went through many iterations to get to the place that they are right now, which... That in itself, I love learning about their writing process and how they got to the place they got to. And I think it's why those movies do feel so great is because they went through a whole bunch of different versions until they found what exactly worked. And it was the same with the sequel. There was a whole bunch of reasons the sequel eventually became, uh, you know, originally was going to be called Bill and Ted Go to Hell, I think. Go to Hell, yeah. But the way they got to Bogus Journey and then... To see the trailer for Face the Music, that's what it's called, right? Face the Music. Yeah. Um, I was genuinely excited because it feels like it's an interesting idea. Well, there's certain reboots or sequels that you're like, like the Dumb and Dumber one they did where they dusted the guys off and they put them in the same costumes and they brought them out and they're like, hey, you guys remember this? And it's kind of just fucking depressing. It's like seeing Kiss. And you're like, oh my God, you guys are just in the same outfits and you're doing the same fucking shit. Like in real life, people age and their attitudes change. And, you know, I understand that the characters have to still occupy the essence, but it feels like in this trailer that, you know, they are, they're they not just coming out and pretending to be teenagers again. They're middle-aged guys who are losers, who never achieved what they wanted to achieve. It's like when we talked about train spotting too last week or the week before. It's like the beautiful thing about train spotting too is it's such a beautiful examination of middle age. The idea of being young and full of all this energy. And you know, you were saying earlier in this podcast that you know you define yourself by what you'd love and what you hate and all these kind of things. And then you just get to your middle age and it's like, oh my God, am I just waiting to die? <laughs> like <laughs> all my ambition, the stuff that I wanted to achieve didn't happen. So now I have to be kind of happy with this. But if I'm not happy with this, do I try or am I going to embarrass myself if I, if I go for it? <clears throat> and what I like about this is the idea that these were guys who were meant to change the world and it hasn't happened yet. So what happens now? Now, hang on. Are you talking about Bill and Ted or is this your tribute to 10 years of Tofov? <laughs> <laughs> I can, I, that's probably why I can identify with it. Um, I, it looks like, and again, we're speculating based on the trailer, but it looks like, you know, the, I, I love this idea that the promise that they were told, you know, what if you got told that you were the guys who were going to write the song that would unite the universe, right? Because that's yeah. kind of the premise, right? The Wild Stallions yeah. are going to write this one song and that, you know, connects everybody and everything's going to be okay about it. And if you got told that that was your future... And then that didn't happen. How do you deal with the consequences of the thing that you'd been promised and told that would define you never actually happening? And then it gets, I think, you know, where it gets interesting to me, you know, when you're thinking about how this story might come together. And I think, I hope from the way that I've seen Ed Solomon, you know, speak on Twitter, I think this is sort of the process that those guys went through as well, which was then how do you, what sort of person do you become? And it toys mm. with that idea of, would you even want to know what your future is? Because <laughs> does knowing what your future is prevent you from actually achieving what your future is meant to be? So I think there's so many cool themes to play with. And it looks to me like that, at least from the trailer, that seems to be the starting point of where they're going to tell this story. And the great thing about having time travel is the sort of central conceit of your film is 
unlike Dumb and Dumber 2 or any of these other kind of reboots or whatever, it allows you to revisit the earlier films and the reasons you love the earlier films for a good reason. Like they're actually built into the main body of the story rather than just like a kind of fan service, you know, hey, you remember this line? You remember this bit? Well, no, they can sort of go back and I'm like, I don't know if this is the plot. I don't know anything about the film. I'm going to do a Gatesy and try and not not learn anything about this film before I see it because I think I, I want to enjoy I want to enjoy it I want to at least give it a shot I I get excited about these kind of things and then I'm always disappointed but this time I'm just not gonna just gonna stay away from trailers and stuff and 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 and, and speculation about the plot we can speculate that's fine I will we're oh. gonna yeah I, I will say one thing okay because I don't know anything about the plot either okay, but good. I did see that Kevin Smith saw it and Kevin Smith loved it, but you know that's no guarantee it's going to be good because every time Kevin Smith gets a preview to something, he'll tell you that he loves it. And a few of those movies have been terrible. But the thing that he said that I thought was worth keeping in mind is that Bill and Ted's are family movies. Yeah, they were always that was that was the appeal of them. Mm. They're not R-rated, Stranger Silent Bob style comedies. Yeah, these are family movies and I think that this one is also going to be a family movie and I wasn't disappointed to hear that I was actually pleased to hear that because I was like I don't want to see Bill and Ted suddenly be these sort of edgier versions of who they are part of the appeal of it uh, this is isn't up. your dad's Bill and Ted this is the <laughs> modern Bill and Ted this is a jaded Bill and Ted I mean we saw that like that's the brilliant of Bogus to see Bogus Journey is my favourite one I, I, I think Excellent Adventure is great but I love how just loose and imaginative they are with Bogus Journey. I agree. And the evil, the evil Bill and Ted, they are the stoner Bill and Ted. They are, you know, what uh, the misconception of what Bill and Ted are. Bill and Ted are sweet, sweet characters. Yeah. They're kind of like uh, 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 babes in the woods, fish out of water. That's the kind of joy is they have this very hopeful, naive attitude towards everything, and that's what you want to see. And so it wouldn't make any sense to have them more cynical. What you could do is... Because now that they've opened up the door to alternate dimensions, that's what I think, you know, you'll see in this film is like, this is the timeline where you became this, or this is the timeline where you became that. And I like the idea of just going, these guys are old. There's no point in them playing anything but being old. And time mm. travel is at the heart of this franchise. It's not just something we've introduced, you know, for the third one. Yeah. It's been intrinsic to the plot. The idea of them writing this song was a consistent theme through the movies and then the idea that they haven't written the song. It's just such a great, if you're talking about a three-beat, you know, set-up, set-up punchline, the idea that you're taking something that is a core premise of the original movies and then twisting it for the third movie is... I just think there's so much good stuff to work with there. I'm ex I genuinely am excited about it. Yeah, I think it's going to be good. I don't know. Is it the same director as the first one? Has has Ed Solomon written about that? You know what? I if I, he probably has, but I I don't remember. Yeah. Well, Ed, uh, if you're listening to this show, we're big fans. <laughs> I don't know how you started following us. I think my suspicion is it's all the uh, the Keanu art. We went through a, a Keanu the Keanu Keanu essence. What did we call it? The Keanu Essence. Mm. Um, uh, we, we had about three or four episodes in a row that was a lot of uh, Keanu artwork. So I'm assuming someone sent that to him or I've seen him interact with Dave Anthony online. Uh, so I'm assuming that maybe Dave, maybe, you know, following Dave and Dave follows us or something like that. It's led him to us, but whatever. Ed, welcome. <laughs> welcome to the Tofopperverse. Uh, and we're very excited about your movie. Jared Leto. Joe. Uh, we spoke about um, a, a couple of episodes ago on this podcast about the idea of the Illuminati and 
Jared Leto and his place within that world. And then, well, a lot of people sent me this article. Mm. Jared Leto has started a cult on an island and his followers call him Prophet. Right. Now, I didn't know anything about this. You sent me um, a little message about this during the week. And so I read one article and they give themselves a name, right? Is that contained in what you're about to read? They have the his cult, they call themselves the Echelon, I believe? Yes. Okay, great. Continue. I think I think that's what... Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll get, get to, to it. To, there's, there's a lot of information okay. here. Uh, who knows how reliable any of it is. Uh, this one uh, is from... Um, and we're going to start with, uh, uh, I reckon let's find a credible uh, resource here. So, um, all right. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, this one from uh, Tone Deaf in the Brag, uh, which is a, a sort of a, an Australian publication that, uh, you know, does pretty reliable music news and entertainment news with a bit of a cynical eye or like a, right. you know... Street culture eye, is that fair to yeah. say? Yeah, and, and look, to be honest, the article that I browsed this week, not from the brag, had a similar tone. I believe that if you're a music journalist and you're given a story to write about Jared Leto, they all have a similar view of Jared Leto and his involvement in the music world. Well, this one I liked because it wasn't completely snarky and felt like it had some information. So okay. uh, this was inevitable. It looks like stadium rock band 30 Seconds to Mars has finally started a cult. Jared Leto has made it quite obvious that he believes himself to be a messiah-like figure. Mm. Now it seems as though he's transformed that radical concept into a fully-fledged reality. This year, the band hosted the inaugural Camp Mars Europe. For four consecutive years, the band have hosted Camp Mars Festival in Malibu, California. The three-day festival allows fans to hang out with the band, engage in classic... <laughs> to sleep with the band, <laughs> yeah. to do drugs with the band, to do ayahuasca with the band, to sleep with the band, and engage in classic camp activities like hiking, yoga, ayahuasca, meditation, ayahuasca, meditation, <laughs> hiking, and Orgies. ayahuasca. While also... Enjoying a live performance from the band 30 Seconds to Mars. Ugh. Not not optional. <laughs> <laughs> the European installment of the festival took place at Mars Island in Croatia over August 9th to the 12th. Relax and restore with yoga amongst the trees. Take a dip in a pool. Catch a midnight, midnight screening or gaze at the stars and catch two intimate performances with 30 seconds to Mars. Just, just before you go on, Will, uh, my, Podcast Mark, maybe you can do a bit of research on this. Let's play a little game. Um, Podcast Mark, if you can look up their top three selling singles, whatever their, their biggest three hits are, um, can, you na- can you name one pod, uh, podcast? Can you name one 30 seconds to Mars song? Um... Uh, um, All right, that's a no. <laughs> I don't think I don't think that I can. Let's guess. Let's guess what the names might be. Um, all right. So podcast markers look up their top three okay. highest selling singles, and you and I are going to try and speculate okay. what they might be called. Okay. 
All right, he's got the top three songs on YouTube. So I'm going to say the first one is called um, uh, 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 In Your Eyes. Oh, good. That's very good. Um, uh, <laughs> that's a no from Podcast Mike. Imagine nice. brackets, imagination, close brackets. <laughs> Um, uh, okay, I'm going to say there's a song called um, uh, uh, Eternal Touch. Oh, that's, yeah, okay, that's brilliant. Um, no, Podcast Mike, Eternal Touch? Is it called Eternal Touch? Uh, no. Reincarnated <laughs> Scarf. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say um, Beautiful Tragedy. Oh, hang on. Okay. Oh. Mike okay. has just told us that uh, I was perhaps, there was some, uh, we were maybe going in the right direction with brackets. There might be a brackets. Okay. All right. So not imaginary brackets. Okay. So um, love like there's no tomorrow in brackets. There is no tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, okay. Hope. Brackets, the ballad of Billy Boyd. Close brackets. <laughs> Hope, open brackets, the ballad of Tom Boyd, Bulldogs Premiership player. Close brackets. <laughs> uh, right, eternal sunshine, uh, brackets, of the eternal mind. Close brackets. Well, I get the feeling with 30 Seconds from Mars, having never listened to their music or anything, that at all, they're kind of like you, they're like you two light, they, but everything okay. has a kind of sense of like, you know, we can all do this and unity and, you know, you know, people rising up and the revolution right. starts here. Love Revolution. Is there a song called Love Revolution? Uh, no. World, world, world song. So, brackets, world song world about <laughs> world song brackets a song about the world a song about brackets. the world all right michael maybe uh, reveal the first uh, youtube song on, did down. you give michael a michael just then was that your first oh shit sorry call your new oh, girlfriend no. by your old girlfriend's name i'm so sorry mike the Kill, Bury Me. Ah, it was 154 million views on YouTube. Oh my God, those guys must be making so much money. Um, sorry, it was called The Kill, The Kill in open brackets, Bury Me. Oh man, that's their moody emo track. I bet you there's a lyric in it, which is like, you took my heart and I locked it in a box. I fed it to a fox and now it's burnt <laughs> to ashes. <laughs> The way America's going, this isn't beyond, you know, like let's say it keeps going the way it's been going for another year or another 18 months. Trump delays the election. You know, there's no democracy in America anymore. There's troops in the street. There's people being abducted. The idea that somebody says, look, i got to be honest with you, we need a circuit breaker for all this. Like we're going to have another civil war unless we have an opportunity to have a circuit breaker and then suddenly there's like a purge. It's not beyond the realms of possibility. The next p movie in the Purge series may be a documentary. 
So tell me, like, is there one of the purge films, is there a moment in which a scientist or historian explains how the purge came about and why they decided to adopt it? Yeah, well, in fact, one of the movies, like, like it, they do it, and this is, there's a lot of things to like about this series, and one of them is that the first purge is like the third or fourth film. Like, so they go back and then go right. back to the, so once you've established what it's like, you know, ongoing, they go back to actually where it started in the first place. And I can't remember the exact details, but it was a social scientist sort of experiment. It happened all on one island originally, like, you know, one restricted right. community where they could have a controlled environment and that was the first purge. And it was sold, you know, very much on that idea that it was some sort of societal circuit breaker, that it was what society needed to then be able to go about their life pretty normally otherwise. It's the cheat so, day strategy. I mean, this is the most popular diet in the world at the moment is cheat day, right? Like, you know, you yes. can do that sort of thing that where you've got to eat well all the week, but then you can have the day. You know, The Rock does it all the time. He sits down and he eats all, all that food. He puts it on fucking Instagram. That is your dieting version of the purge, right? Well, there's another dieting version of the purge, but that is the <laughs> yeah, analogy. That, that's considered that is a, the dieting a serious version mental illness of the purge. So I don't think it's beyond the realms of somebody at least suggesting. But I, I just think about like the way politics is, and it's so hard at the moment. Like the uh, po politics is so partisan now that you know it's hard to push even a slightly kind of left of center measure the fact that any politician would get up on a platform of let's have a purge night everyone and it gets voted in or are we talking about an authoritarian state in the purge universe is that is it an authoritarian state that implements it like running man it's 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 a state not that far away from the current united states of america um here we go there's a, i found a little explainer here the purge universe explained the basics uh, the Purge takes place in a near future world where an organization called the you've New Founding Fathers... I believe, Will. I think you've oh. muted yourself. Oh, okay. It says on my screen you're muted. Yep. No, Talk I have. Now? I've muted There myself. you go. Yeah. Um, okay. So, I was getting yeah. too close to the yeah. truth. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> you were getting too close to the, mu the truth, so you censored yourself. <laughs> I do, well, I, I don't know if I did it. Like, I mean, I, maybe Skype did it. Maybe some forces more powerful no. than us did it. Uh, the Purge takes place in a near future world where, where an organization called the New Founding Fathers of America. So it's not beyond the realms of possibility that you could have an organization now called the New Founding Fathers of America. Okay. And they take control of the United States. So let's say in the, if it was in the real world, it'd be like the Lincoln Project. Right. On the surface, they look to be like establishing American values. But if you dig a little deeper into the people behind it, you're like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. You guys have got our best intentions. In response to rising crime rates, unemployment and social unrest... So same environment as we're currently going through. The new founding fathers created an annual holiday called The Purge. For one night every year, American citizens are given 12 hours of complete freedom to commit whatever crimes they please. So that's the trick. It doesn't have to be murder. You just can commit any crime you want. Now, this is like this might be a way that, you know, there's looting and rioting in different cities. Maybe they say hey, you've all got to go back to your houses, but we're going to give you one night a year where you can go out and you can loot and you can purge. How do you pick the night? Um, okay. I mean, because it's going to be controversial, right? Because like, there's going to be people who have problems with it being in what season it's going to be in. Like, oh, we can't purge in the middle of winter. It's freezing outside. Or if you... 
I mean, is it the entire of America is purging? Because what about like yep. time zone difference? Can you jump on a plane and purge, get an extra five hours purging done if you fly from the East Coast back West? Yeah, you've got to fly on Persian Atlantic, that uh, <laughs> aeroplane network. You can't purge until you fly across the border. The pilot makes an announcement that you've crossed state lines and time zones and then suddenly people start purging each other in the air. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the idea behind the purge is that they release their pent-up aggression and they become better hardworking citizens the other 364 days of the year, right? Okay. So so is there zero there is zero crime during the rest of the year, the 364 days uh, there's there's zero crime because people are so satiated by the purge that there's no not even jaywalking or is crime still happening the rest of the year around? Crime is happening but it's down because Often the people who, you know, are forced to commit crimes are the ones who are being purged as well. You know, the homeless and intransient and, you know, people right. who ordinarily would be outside the mainstream laws of society tend to be the ones who are purged. So, like, it's a way to wipe out, you know, minority populations and people who are drains on the larger system basically at its very heart. So um, here are the movies. This is sounding like a documentary. <laughs> right. So... The first purge, and these are just little, like there's a little blurb on each of the um, okay. first four. So uh, the purge is the original one. The original purge unfolds in the near future landscape of... 2020. 2022. Oh, shit. At this point, the purge has been an annual event for several years. Oh, shit. Okay, we're behind. <laughs> and some enterprising individuals, like security salesman James Sandon, Ethan Hawke, have found ways of profiting from the event. The film follows Sandon and his family as they discover their lavish home isn't quite as purge-proof as they thought. Um, so, okay. So, basically, it's all set in one house. It's on purge night. You know, there's... You know, anyway. It, it's it's a very clever, good idea and then shot in one sort of place. You know, horror idea. So, the first one. So, then there's Purge Anarchy in 2014. The sequel play takes place in 2023 during the seventh annual purge. Okay. okay. Anarchy so, introduces an LAPD officer named Leo Barnes who plans on. on using the purge as an opportunity. I'll go on. Yep. So, so 2023 is the seventh year of the purge, which means the first was 2016. Was there any other significant event that happened in America in 2016? Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I've been going down this Monty Python rabbit hole, right? It's fair to say that there are so many Monty Python documentaries out there. Like I've watched six Monty Python documentaries in the last week because I've just been on this nostalgia trip and, and just so fascinated by their entire story. And it's, I, it is the charisma of that group of men in different factors. Like I think Simon Pegg, one of the documentaries I'm watching at the moment, it's uh, they get a bunch of celebrities in to talk about their favorite sketch. And so like Mike Myers is on it and Jim Carrey and Simon Pegg and Simon Pegg, because they ask all the all the celebrities, who's your favorite member? And Simon Pegg's like, well, you can't say that because it's like the X-Men or Justice League or whatever. They're all good for different reasons. And, you know, you watch these live shows that they did. And it's like, oh, my God, they were the closest thing to rock stars because I'm trying I was trying to think of what has there been an equivalent comedy troupe that have done and had the lasting impact 
of Monty Python. Like that show they did at the O2 Arena. I had I remember hearing about it at the time and have a fondness for Python or whatever, but just didn't really think about it. Now watching all these documentaries and seeing the footage from that show, I'm like, oh my God, I should have gone to that. Like it was so amazing. But there is something about that group, which is like, they're almost in a kind of arena on their own because is what's the next biggest sort of comedy troupe that would rival them in terms of popularity and influence? I, I don't know enough about the history of American comedy, like, but I imagine there's some sort of Groundlings or Mad TV or like, you know, Saturday Night Live, you know, style alumni, but they seem like bigger... I mean, what was that show that in Living Colour? Like, you know, there was a few of those sort of shows that had their own, but none of them to me seemed as big or spawned as many careers and as Monty Python. Like, maybe way back in the early days of American comedy, there might have been like, you know, some sort of like, you know, your Bob Newhart crew or these like TV shows that had these. I mean, there was some legendary writers' room that had like Woody Allen and Mel Brooks or something mm. in, in it. So I guess there's probably equivalencies. I guess like, but to us, I can't imagine there's anyone bigger than Monty Python for shorter periods. Definitely, like you know, there was times when there was a group of great comedians together. But the thing mm. that makes them unique is 45 years. You know, obviously losing members and all that kind of stuff. But essentially. It's not like they were consistently putting stuff out. They would just revisit their dynamic for a short amount of time. You know, it might be five years, ten years, whatever. And because you watch that, the show they did the O2 Arena, and it's so like... It's it's a a cheesy, dumb idea. You're watching a bunch of 70-year-old men get dressed up to say lines of sketches you know off by heart, you know. And you're like, what is it about this that I'm interested in? And then you realize it's kind of... It's more about praying at the altar of the thing you worshipped as a kid. It's it's the experience of the familiarity of it and the feeling you had when you first saw that sketch or, you know, you saw John Cleese do the Silly Walk or whatever. Like, Gemma and I watched the Silly Walk sketch last night. I haven't seen it in 20 years. And it's fucking hilarious. Like, it is so good. Like, the, the, the stuff that they did is... is I don't know. I've just really been thinking about it a lot because after Terry but Jones the, died... I, like, don't you think there's something also about... And this, I think this is what you were saying to a certain extent, but you like to see them together. There's something that yeah. they make together. These bunch of people who got along to various degrees and sometimes didn't get along at all, who weren't all exactly the same. They didn't have the same backgrounds necessarily. They certainly did not have the same skill sets. But together... And all these people who've gone off and done individually a whole bunch of different and interesting things, but there is just something about when they are all together that is more special than when they are all apart from each other. And even though you know that they don't necessarily get along and you know that they're 70 year old men just like doing these things Mm. they wrote as young men, there's something about nice. Like I think part of the appeal of the original Python is that it does feel like a group of Friends, you know, that's how you interpret mm. it when you watch it. A group of friends yeah. making these silly things together. And sometimes the funniness is in one of them not trying to break up or one of them trying, like, it is, it's not just that the sketch is amazing. It is that you love watching them work together inside the sketch. It's, dude, it's adorable. It's adorable seeing them on stage together being silly and doing funny voices like they did Graham Norton's show. And, like, it's so. it's so predictable yet so welcome and it's it's really funny because it's been making me think a lot about their commitment to creating python was always about like 
let's not repeat ourselves. Like, let's not do a fourth season. You know, we feel like we've done everything we're going to do with Flying Circus. Okay, let's try and get to film now. All right, if we're going to do a stage show, why are we doing a stage show? And there's always an intent and a resistance to push past that. Like, they originally were going to do one show and it was literally to pay off legal debts they had with the O2 Arena show. And then... Terry Jones needed to pay off his mortgage. So they're like, okay, we'll add another show so Terry can pay off his mortgage. And then those tickets sold so fast, they did 10 shows and those shows all sold out. So they all made like a ton of money. And then of course, offers roll in from the US and the rest of the world. And it's like, well, you guys can go on tour for a year and you'll make, you know, you'll never have to work again. You'll be set, your families will be set. But Michael Palin was the first one to say, I don't want to do that. Like I'm actually comfortable where I am and, you know, I'm glad Terry's house has paid off, but I have enough money and that was fun and I don't want to go past it. And that has been the motto their entire career. That's why they haven't sort of stuck together for years. They will come together when it works and when it interests them. Like even Terry Gilliam <clears throat> like had such a punk attitude in the 70s when people were wanting them to you know, make movies and stuff. He just wanted to release stuff that would disappoint people or completely subvert expectations. Like I can't remember what the example was, but... You know, he said they should take money from a TV station and just go out and film trees for like half an hour and just bring it back to them and like say, yeah, that's the show and put their names to it. Because he was like, if you're not fucking with the system, then what is the point? Yeah, I agree. But but that we've seen what that left unguarded by the moderation of others creates as well. Like Terry Gilliam, you know, for all his genius, he's also a complete and utter hot mess genius you know without that sort of guiding force of what the others in that group brought to him as well and i think that you see that i mean i think that funnily enough you know there are the michael palins of it the more sort of subdued characters originally like hilarious like you know some of the most iconic characters Mm. but also felt like they were more subdued in the dynamic of the group have been those who've been able to adjust to real life and the real world perhaps a little bit you know in a less complicated fashion than some of the others have but there's just something about it's i guess it's like when you know when axel rose tours doing fucking guns and roses songs and it's not guns and roses like buckethead's probably playing the guitar Mm. pretty much as well as slash plays the guitar but you're just like (laughs) just quite isn't quite the same with buckethead is it (laughs) so what's the tipping point though like just say python were too continue now terry jones is gone like how many members are they allowed to get down to before you're like uh you know now this feels like uh, axel rose with buckethead i mean i it would be great if one of them just keeps like doing it do you know what I mean like i yeah. just keep like Ma- constantly like replacing Ramone. the rest of the fucking cast i went i went and saw marky ramone uh did a tour to australia he played at the corner hotel which was like a night with marky ramone where um he uh, would just tell stories and a Q&A about being in the Ramones. And then he and I think there's a, and I'm just saying, this is the name of the band, the Spazzies. They were a band, yes. right? Like a, a sort of punky band. So uh, he would play with them. He'd play drums with them and they'd do like Ramones covers. But it was like the thinnest premise for a tour I think I've ever seen. It's literally the drummer from the band is going to get up and play like cover songs and then give you vaguely remembered like anecdotes from his time on the road with the Ramones. Who is the Python that is most likely to just keep true? Because Cleese wouldn't. Cleese, like Eric you know. Idle, without it, without a doubt. <laughs> Eric Idle lives in LA. 
Well, Eric, Ida, what you learned from one, I can't remember one of the docos I saw, but it's the it's the behind the scenes of the O2 Arena show. And so Eric Idle had was the one who did spam a lot. So he yeah. had all the theater experience. So that it fell to him to kind of take over the show. And you watch him and he's really fucking good at it. And he has a good instincts for because they film all these sketches to play in between the live stuff. And so, you know, he does a joke with Stephen Hawking and Brian Cox where they talk about the song from the meaning of life. Like Brian Cox breaks it down to say it's not scientifically accurate before getting run over by Stephen Hawking. So <laughs> like it has like enough of a python feel to it and you're sort of watching it and then you see him putting the show together and he knows all the all the sketches and he's curated the best ones and you're like oh eric idol is the what do you what do you call it the person who's left in charge of the ip he's like the um like he's the guardian of of python he's the custodian he's custodian that's the word i was looking for and you know what he's the one that could do it so if, if he's the only one who's still surviving and people still have a nostalgia for it, he could probably resync it and rework it and write some songs about, you know, some original songs to put in the middle of it or well, he's, that sort of thing. Well, he still performs. Like, he likes – he's on the stage all the time and stuff. He still performs. Whereas, I mean, the other thing about these documentaries, because I've been jumping all over the place. Some of them, you know, are made in the 60s. Some of them are, you know, in the early 2000s and – Sort of just seeing different John Cleese's and where are you Jesus finding Christ's. these documentaries? By the way, all on Netflix. You know how they suggest all, all of things because you've been watching. Yeah, all all of them have been on Netflix. There's at least five. Um, wow! And then I, I, I downloaded one. There, on, go, there uh, goes my week. week. <laughs> what did you do with the what? great quarantine of 2020? Well, I just found <laughs> out there's five more Monty Python documentaries I can watch. Strap in, guys, because I'll be talking about my takes on Monty Python next week. <laughs> 